Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for people who love the history of the British Army, its characters and campaigns. Today I'm joined by my old school friend, Dr. Chris Bryce, who some of you may remember from our talks about Field Marshal Hugh Goff. Today we're talking about another fascinating but almost forgotten Victorian general, Sir Henry Brackenbury. Brackenbury was a logistics genius, a historian, a lecturer, and possibly the only man to have won both the Iron Cross and the Legion d'Honneur. He served in the Asante Campaign, the Gordon Relief Column, and was deployed all over the world in various wars. This is a cracking story that you won't want to miss. Before we begin though guys, I do need your help. I want to keep this show growing, and so therefore I ask you to give it a 5 star review, leave a comment and share the link with anybody you think might be interested. I'm actually really worried that these stories are going to get lost if we don't make an effort to keep them alive and to make sure that these great men aren't forgotten. If, after doing all of that, you still have energy, then please also consider signing up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you do that, you'll get a free copy of my ebook all about the Anglo Zulu War of 1879. Well, Chris, welcome back to the show. It's been too long. Fantastic to have you back. Good to be back. <laughs> Let's start off with a nice one. We're talking about an amazing character today, General Brackenbury. First off, obviously you've done a lot of research on this man. You've written a book about him. Can you just give us the sort of the summation of his career? Give us a bit of an overview and then we can dive into some more detail afterwards. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a guy who is at every major event of the, the Victorian British Army in, in many respects, but often behind the scenes. Um, and gets overlooked and there was much of his career that was greatly appreciated at the time but is, is completely forgotten um a quote that we'll probably return to later on is is his role in the south african war which is largely over overlooked and um you know at a later date uh prince of wales future king edward the uh edward the seventh said of him that Brackenbury was the man who pulled the army out of the hole in South Africa. And that was because of his logistical ability. Um, many people talk about logistical problems in the South African war. And what we're really talking about there is once stuff gets to South Africa, uh, the, the situation of getting stuff from the UK and various parts of the empire to South Africa actually works extremely well, considering the demands. You know, We're talking about a force that gets up to almost half a million men when all British machinery of administration is designed to support forces of at most 50,000 men. So we're talking about them having to go in completely different directions and Brackenbury is a key part of that. And he's a man who for all his career has been a great uh, thinker, writer, um, and his ability to organize his logistical qualities are uh, extraordinary. Um, you know, L Lord Wolseley said of him, He's not one of, but he is the cleverest man in the British Army. Uh, and in many respects, he was. I mean, that, that might be a low, a low bar, but, you know, he really was. Um, and he came from a, a, a fairly minor Lincolnshire landowning family. Um, there'd been some great wealth in the family at one point, but he was the younger son of a younger son. So Brackenbury didn't see any of it. Um, his father had been a Peninsular War veteran who 
although he didn't die in the campaign, he died of his wounds a number of years later. Um, he, he had some very serious injuries during, uh, during the Peninsula campaign and never really recovered. Um, he lived until, oh, was it 18, 1844, I believe. But, you know, he'd, he'd been in a constant state of pain and debilitation ever since the Peninsula. Um, his uncle's an interesting character, Sir Edward Brackenbury, who was also a great influence on him. And Edward Brackenbury plays an important part in the Peninsula campaign because he's one of uh, Beresford's um, officers in the Portuguese army. He's commanding a Portuguese battalion. So there's quite a strong family military link. And Brackenbury's a, you know, a young man who, as I say, there's not a lot of money around, but somehow they might manage to find the money to send him to uh, Tunbridge School. Uh, and then on to Eton, where he's at Eton for two years. Now, who paid his Eton fees? I have never been able to find out. I was in contact with the school when I was doing my research, and they just confirmed to me that his fees were paid. He wasn't a scholarship or anything like that. But there's obviously this far forward, they can't say who paid the fees. So someone paid the fees, possibly his uncle, uh, Sir Edward Brackenbury, I don't know. Um, but it, it's very interesting that here's a young man who goes to school, not particularly academically gifted. He gets reasonable marks for his his uh, you know for his schoolwork, etc., but nothing spectacular. And then, as I say, military family, military tradition. But he doesn't decide to go into the army straight away. And here's a really interesting little period of his life. Um, I think he's about fourteen, nearly fifteen, and he's sent to Canada to uh, Quebec and to Mr. Archibald uh, Campbell, who's Her Majesty's notary in Quebec, which basically means any government business in Quebec goes through his office. So it's a fairly you know, major source of work. Um, and Brackenbury does a sort of, you know, a, a probationary period there, training for a career in the law. Now, he had the intelligence, he had the intellect that would have suited that. Whether he had the mindset to really want to do that, I don't know. But it's an interesting period. And also, it coincides with his first touch of military life. Uh, because through Mr. Campbell, he gets um, uh, commissioned into the 7th, I want to say 7th, yes, yeah, 7th Battalion of the Quebec Militia um, as, a, as an ensign. Um, and that's actually interesting because when later he then joins the Royal Artillery um, and is, is in training, because he's got a militia commission, they make him the senior under officer. And Brackenbury later said he didn't have the heart to tell them he'd only been on one muster parade. That was his entire uh, militia experience. <laughs> Based on that, they made him the senior uh, cadet officer. Good man, um, fake it till you make it. Well, yeah, uh, and, and he did that a lot in his life, actually. Um, there's, as I say, he was he was from fairly, if I say humble origins, that is going to be misconstrued. There was no great wealth in the family. They they had they'd had some land at one stage, but actually, Brackenbury's farmer was a, a father was a tenant uh, rather than a landowner. Um, and certainly after his death, there was you know, as I say, they, they were struggling. And so Brackenbury actually, to make him seem. Partly, I think, to make him seem like he was higher born than he was. And also, I believe, as a defence mechanism against the fact that he was a very professional uh, individual in an era when that wasn't looked upon very kindly, he affected a lisp. 
And so he would, you know, the sort of the haw haw laugh that we see in as a caricature, he sort of affected that and a lisp. And so his name, Brackenbury, would be pronounced Brackenbury. You know, and uh, why? <laughs> One has to ask the question because why. It was fashionable because it was very fashionable. There were a lot of these lisping dandies around the, the British Army <laughs> at that period. Um, and so he affected that. And it's quite bizarre, really. I mean, there's there's a period where um, later on in his life, he and Lord Randolph Churchill, Winston's father, are um, debating a lot of things together and that they get together and they're, they're trying to sort out a lot of army reform and army expenditure. And they're actually working together very closely on some incredibly serious matters. Well, Lord Randolph Churchill did have a list. If Breckenbury was still affecting it at this time, I just have this vision of these two highly intellectual men lisping at each other, discussing the great affairs of the British <laughs> army. And it, 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 it's so bizarre. Um, but Breckenbury, you know, as I say, there was always this sense that he wanted to ingratiate himself with high society. He became very good friends with uh, a lot of, you know, peers of the realm. Um, there is also a sense in which, and I think you can make too much of this, but there is a sense in which that he uses people to advance his career. Um, Patronage, as we know, is, is key in, in the Victorian era, particularly in the, in the army. Um, he goes a long way on the patronage of Lord Wolseley, a little bit of Lord Roberts as well, which is quite an interesting thing that we might touch on later. Uh, Roberts holds him in very high regard, despite the fact that he's from the rival ring, in that sense, which sort of you know, tells you a little bit more about the rings. Um, and also a lot of politicians. Um, his job in India, uh, for example, um, Lord Salisbury, you know, Prime Minister, is quite influential in getting him that job because he thinks quite highly of him. The famous W.H. Smith, when he's uh, Secretary of State uh, for War, um, he, he helps advance him. Lord Stanhope helped adv advance him as well. Um, and particularly Lord Lansdowne, because he serves with Lord Lansdowne not only in India, but then also in the War Office as well. That's quite fortuitous for Brackenbury that a man he's worked with so closely in India, by the time Brackenbury gets back to uh, to England, Lord Lansdowne's the Secretary of State for War, um, which is, you know, a very important role for him. And he's very close with Lansdowne. Um, but again, there's an element in which, there's a story, I'll just tell you very briefly, because I think it illustrates this way. Lansdowne comes in for a lot of criticism uh, during the South African War. A lot of blame is thrown at him some of it fairly, a lot of it deeply unfairly because he's being blamed for stuff that's been going on for generations. And, you, know, you can't hold him responsible for that. Um, and Brackenbury is called to give evidence to the, uh, the Elgin Commission, which is the Royal Commission on the War in, in South Africa. And because Brackenbury's done such a good job and, and he's coming out of the, the war with credit to his name, one of the few military officers who does, um, there's this extraordinary letter where Lord Elgin uh, sends an email, uh, sorry, it's an email, sorry, I've jumped <laughs> for sends a letter uh, to uh, Brackenbury just before the Royal Commission. You can edit that bit out. <laughs> I leave it in for comedy value. Yeah, uh, sends a, a, a letter to, to Brackenbury just before he's about to give evidence to the Royal Commission basically telling him what they want to hear from Brackenbury and giving him leading questions that he can then 
says, and so he's treated very much as a friendly witness. Lansdowne, I think, knows this and sends quite a pleading letter to Brackenbury just before he gives evidence to say, look, if you can set the record straight on my conduct and what I've done and, you know, defend me a bit, uh, I'd be ever so grateful. Brackenbury doesn't, because I think Brackenbury knows it's going to hurt him potentially as well. And so there's this sense that although Lansdowne's helped him throughout his career, when, you know, he wants to return to the favour, Brackenbury's looking out for number one. And yes, he does. He is always looking out for number one. But in fairness, he's got to because no one else is really going to, to a large extent. He gets yeah. the patronage of people like Wolseley, but Wolseley drops him as well when, when it doesn't suit Wolseley. Um, for example, the 1882, again, it's a a longer story but Brackenbury isn't on that's the one the only one really of the um the Wolseley ring or the Ashanti ring expeditions that Brackenbury isn't on and Wolseley doesn't really fight for him whereas I think if he'd have fought to get him on the campaign he could have done Brackenbury was a little bit in disgrace because of Ireland another story <laughs> we'll get there um, yeah we're just so, yeah go on carry on well no I was just going to say Chris just just um just to bring it back a little bit before we delve too far into some of the later stories, how did he end up then from being in Quebec, looking like he wasn't going to follow a military career, to then to then joining the army and uh, joining the Royal Artillery? What, what's the story there? Do we know? Well, we do to an extent. I mean, the motivation for him joining the army, I think there are three reasons. Firstly, there's the family tradition, and perhaps particularly his his father I know you can perhaps make too much of this but you know Breckenwood was barely six years old when his father died the military tradition his service in the army is probably one of the few things he knew about him and so perhaps in one sense it made him feel a little closer to his, his father there's also his brother Charles uh, Charles Booth Breckenwood who's a, again a very interesting and important figure um, becomes, again, another uh, great thinker and writer of the, of the period. And uh, he's joined the Royal Artillery. And throughout their lives, there's something, and it's quite a friendly rivalry between the two brothers, but they're always trying to sort of top each other, out, outdo each other. Um, and so that, I think, is a motivation as well. But thirdly, and I think this is an important thing, um, by the time he's looking at joining the Royal Artillery, we're in the Crimea War, and they're crying out for artillery officers. There's a real need for it. So much so that they open the exam to Woolwich, the Royal Military Academy Woolwich, to general competition for the first time. And so he doesn't need a referral. He doesn't need to jump through all the hoops, et cetera, et cetera. He can just go and sit the exam. So he does. He goes and he sits the exam. He passes out. Lower top half, I suppose, is, is perhaps the nicest way of putting it. Um, nothing spectacular, but nothing terrible either. And he joins the Royal Artillery. And, you know, I mean, he's still only, what, 16, 17, 18, around about that time during, during that period that, um, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's coming into the Royal Artillery. Um, so he's commissioned as a lieutenant in April uh, 1856. And there's a story that goes around that basically says that he didn't complete all 
the courses or the or the training and the reason was they were trying to push these officers forward because the army was planning for a campaign season for 56 well as we know there wasn't one in the Crimea um, but they didn't know that at the time and so they were trying to push the officers through quickly and so he's, he's there he's qualified and uh, he sets he, very early on as I say he's commissioned in April 56 well by August 56 he's already acting as the adjutant of the Royal Artillery in the Western District of the United Kingdom um, which is important because you've got the, the fortresses like Plymouth, uh, the naval fortresses like Plymouth, you know, it's got Falmouth as well, I suppose. You know, there's a lot of important areas in there, so it's a fairly key job. And actually, this leads on, and there's a, there's a funny little story that goes on to how he ends up in the Indian Mutiny in fighting the suppression, because uh, he volunteers for service there. And um, because he's doing such a good job as, as, as adjutant, uh, his commanding officer says, no, we can't spare you, and refuses to let him go to, uh, to India. And Brackenbury doesn't leave it there, rather than uh, you know, sort of accept that. He uh, gets his uncle, uh, Sir Edward, um, working on uh, trying to get him there. And Sir Edward's uh, former Peninsula War buddy is the... Um, let just find out his exact title, is the Adjutant General of Artillery, Sir Hugh Ross. Um, and basically this story goes that uh, uh, Sir Edward asks Sir Hugh, can he get him on the, you know, get him on the boat to India, basically. And Sir Hugh asks, well, how old is, is the lad? And Sir Edward, his uncle, just says, oh, he's, he's only 19. And Sir Hugh says, only 19? And they say he can't be spared. You know, this is a good lad. We want him on active service. And so he gets sent out there. So the, the commanding officer's remark that was supposed to stop him from getting out there actually was the factor that got him on out there. And, and the mutiny, I mean, I know we're going to touch on it again. Well, I think now's as good a time as any to, to, to dive into it, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's an important experience for him. As I say, he's only 19. Uh, he's seeing active service for the first time. And he gets an excellent lesson in how not to fight a campaign. Um, because the stories we, we hear from, uh, from his experience, particularly from a logistical point of view, I suppose, rather than a military point of view, there are some confusing things. I mean, basically, they send them, the ship lands in Madras. It's directed, redirected to Madras. Well, at this stage, there's no pier, there's no landing area so they have to land straight on the beach with horses and with artillery they're landing on the beach i mean it, it's ridiculous um there's no organization they're pretty much having to do it themselves they then spend two weeks getting acclimatized before they're giving an order to go to um oh uh, malika patan now i can't remember that's the old name or the new name so forgive me if i've used uh, an old-fashioned name for it um which is where there is actually a place where you know they can they can go when they get there they get there in the in the evening that they're, they're spending a long time there waiting around on the beach no one comes to see them no no one comes no staff officer nothing and eventually a staff officer turns up and and basically he's very angry and saying what are you doing on the beach at this time of night because it <laughs> would have been ordered to be here and basically the order had supposed to have been countermanded never was and so they've gone all the way there well all their baggage has already boarded ship. 
So they're stuck there on the beach without any uh, spare clothing, baggage, you know, toiletries, anything like that. And it's an absolute mess and chaos. Then when finally they do get sent forward and they go forward into action, they're landed without any headgear. All they've got is forage caps. Well, if you know a forage cap, it gives you precious little protection from the sun. So they've got no helmets and they're advancing in the heat of India um, without any head protection. And unsurprisingly, many of the men go down with, well, sunstroke, solar apoplexy, I think they, they call it at the, the time. And, you know, this, they're decimated because of this. And so this whole campaign, I mean, he does see active service. They, he does command men in battle for the first time as a, as a young man. Uh, and I suppose in a sense, well, it could be misconstrued, but he gets that out of the way. You know, he needs th th that first time in battle is all, particularly as an officer, I think, but for anyone, is always a trying experience because I, I suppose you can have all the training in the world. But if you're a young officer, you don't know how you're going for any soldiers. You don't know how you're going to react in combat until you're actually there. Um, and he comes through that experience. And I think he gains a lot of uh, valuable lessons. Um, and then obviously he's, uh, he serves there for a little over a year and then he's invalided home. I've never been able to find out exactly why. Um, there's a story that uh, he fell from his horse and damaged his leg, but I think that is getting misconstrued with another event later in his life in India when he fell from a horse and, and damaged his leg. I don't think he did it twice. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I've got a feeling he probably succumb to, to sunstroke, solar apoplex, yeah. we call it. Well, um, just, so just while we're talking mutiny, in your research, have you been able to find out uh, where he fought and with which units, or, or is that not something you know? Yes, I mean, he, he's, um, uh, he's with G Battery of the 14th Brigade of the Royal Artillery, and the... Uh, oh, the N N I'm going to massacre this name, I do apologise. Nobodha, I think it is, Field Force under Major General George Whitlock. Um, and they see a fair bit of, uh, of fighting. I mean, they're at, uh, at Banda, um, where the artillery actually plays quite a, a, an important part. And he, he goes all the way through. So this is the Central India campaign, really, um, with Whitlock's column. And so he sees quite a lot of of active fighting. I mean, all right, being an artillery officer, he's a little bit withdrawn. You know, he's not on the battle line, but yeah, he comes under fire himself. He, he sees a lot of action. Uh, he learns to, to fight when someone's firing back at you, um, you know, which no training in the world really can get you ready for that. Brilliant. So, so generally then, to sum up, the feeling is that he did a pretty solid job where, you know, everyone was kind of happy with his performance. Yes, I think so. I think, you know, he comes home. There's obviously an, um, he's got a medal. He's got a clasp to his medal saying Central India. He's obviously, uh, you know, he's done, he's done well. He's done his duty. Um, and I think it's shortly after that he's promoted to captain. And is it as a captain, he then goes to, was it Sandhurst as a, as a professor Woolwich. of history or something? Oh, Woolwich, sorry. Woolwich. Um, this is where, yeah, this, you're not the first one. Um, 
some fairly uh, highly um, ranked military historians have failed to sort of because they just see, see Royal Military Academy and they presume Santos. But this is the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich. Um, and he's actually the first, I mean, he has a series of appointments there, training appointments. Um, and he's the instructor of, uh, assistant instructor in artillery in, in 1864, which is quite an important job. And just, just to detach a little bit, that's an important period because with this job, he has a lot of free time. And it's during this uh, period that he decides that he wants to start doing a bit of research and a bit of writing. Um, and he starts uh, working on a history of ancient canon in Europe, which is later published um, two, two volumes in uh, the Proceedings of the Royal Artillery. And, you know, it's, it's an important start. I mean, it was actually, this was meant to be a long series of uh, a, a history of, of, of canon. Um, but he lost a lot of uh, his work in a fire and really didn't have the, the heart to start all over again. So it's, it, it ended as a two volume history, um, which is published, as I say, in Proceedings of the Royal Artillery. And he's, he's, he's helped at this stage or encouraged, I suppose, by um, Colonel, uh, later Sir, Sir John Henry uh, Nefroy, who's the, um, in charge of the, uh, the Royal Artillery at, at Woolwich. And he encourages him to write and actually puts him in, in contact with um, a number of uh, people who help get him published yet further. And so he starts his literary career at that point. Having started his literary career, he uh, then realizes that there's this attempt to create a professor of military history for Woolwich, because at this point, it's been done on a fairly ad hoc basis. Um, Hamley, has, who is Professor of Military History at uh, Sandhurst, has been coming over a bit, other artillery officers, but they realise that, and, and this is no disrespect to Hamley, it, they realise this isn't an ideal situation uh, and that they need someone full, or they want someone full time. So Brackenbury goes for the job, gets it, and is appointed the first Professor of Military History at Woolwich. So he's the first Professor of Royal Mil uh, of military history at the Royal Military Academy, Woolwich. Again, as I said, that gets confused sometimes and people say he succeeded Hamley um, at the Royal Military Academy. No, he, well, he did, but he didn't. Hamley had been part-time doing the job, but Hamley's appointment was at Sandhurst, not Woolwich. Um, and so this is again, another important period where he's got an opportunity to write and research a lot more as well. He actually starts a period here where because he's um, doing a lecture series each term, in between terms, he's allowed to go off to Europe and tour the continental battlefields to, to get research and, and to see the, the lay of the land, et cetera, for the next uh, term's lectures. And he gets a small grant to pay for this as well. And so he goes off, he does this, He's not only getting material for his lectures, he's also getting material for journal articles and newspaper articles. Um, and so he's, he's doing a double, a double turn there in, in that sense that he's, he's also writing for the popular press. And here again, point worth making, Brackenbury writes for the popular press. 
Yes, I, I know he said I said he wrote for the proceedings of the Royal Artillery, but that's that's unusual. He does do a little bit for the United Service Journal, but the majority of it is for popular journals, Blackwoods, Fraser's, things like that. Um, and for the popular press, he does a lot of, uh, of work for them. Um, and the reason for that is simply we're, we're down to money. He's getting paid for these articles. Whereas his brother, Charles, who's got a, a bit more money uh, behind him, um, he writes more for the uh, trade journals, shall we say. So for the Royal United Service and, and things like that. And the more um, technical military side of it, where Brackenbury is writing to the popular press and being professor of military history actually helps him to advance his literary career, uh, which is quite considerable. Um, you know, it's very difficult to come to. I, I did put a list in the back of my book of, of the articles I can actually identify, um, but a number of them it's harder to identify because he, because of the, the uh, subject matter, he didn't always write under his own name. Now, some of his, um, the false names, nom de plumes, whatever you want to say that he's, he's writing under, we do know they have been identified. And other articles we know because Brackenbury or other people have identified. But, you know, he wrote five books. Well, four books, I, I have to, to clarify this, there's four books, and then there's a fifth book, which is actually two journal articles, volume one and volume two, that are combined together and later reprinted as a book. So you can say five, you can say four. And, but well over 50 journal articles, probably getting on for a hundred pieces for, for newspapers that, that he wrote throughout his career. So it's, it's a fairly considerable literary output for anyone, let alone someone who really, this was a part-time job in that, in that sense. And how, how important and influential was his writing at the time? You know, what, was it making waves? Was he getting noticed? Uh, yes, he was. Um, and there's two, there's two senses to that. One, because of the nature of the journals and newspapers he's writing for, He's getting noticed by politicians. He's getting noticed by the, the campaigners, um, perhaps more than if he'd written for, you know, the, the trade journals. Uh, and I say that in the sense that a politician probably read Blackwood's magazine, but didn't read the Royal United Service Journal. Um, so you, we really do have a sense where he's reaching people that he perhaps wouldn't otherwise reach. But it is also appreciated by the military, and that's how he really comes to the attention of Garnet Wolseley. Um, they actually, their first meeting, although it's very brief, is actually related to a journal that they're both going to write articles for. Um, that's a very brief meeting. Um, there's a, a more important meeting later on. And Brackenbury actually, try and, I'll try and tell the story quickly. Um, because he's becoming quite recognized as a lecturer, he's invited to give a series of lectures to Prince Arthur, the Duke of Connaught, who at this stage is you know, obviously son of Queen Victoria, um, and this stage is serving as an officer in the uh, Rifle Brigade. And so Brackenbury gives this series of lectures to him to help him with his military understanding. And then um, 
Brackenbury is invited to give a, uh, a lecture on, um, I'm trying to think of the exact name of it, it's basically, the, the lecture is basically called The Three Arms. Um, and it's really how the tactics of the three arms as they modified to meet the requirements of today or something like that. And basically it's looking how tactics of using cavalry, infantry and artillery have changed, particularly in the light of the Franco-Prussian War, um, which I think sort of, these changes had been coming for a long time and had developed in other conflicts, but the Franco-Prussian War brings it to a big audience. Um, I'm sorry to anyone who researches the American Civil War. Yes, that's grown in popularity since, but at the time that was considered small fry compared to the Franco-Prussian War. This, this was the big, this was the big armies, you know, this was Germany versus France, the, the two largest major uh, armies in Europe. So this is far more important than the American Civil War. I mean, there are things certainly you can learn from the American Civil War and the British Army actually probably learned more from the American Civil War than many other nations. Um, probably because a lot of the, the influential officers actually went out there and were, uh, you know, were witnessing it. Um, but Breckenbury actually, you know, does this very interesting thing, very interesting lecture. Um, and because he gets the Duke of Connaught, because of their previous connection, to be the president, he's got a packed house. Um, and one of the, the notable people there is Wolseley. And this is where they really connect. So just for anyone who doesn't know, that's Sir Garnet Wolseley, who was one of the most sort of influential generals of his era in the Victorian army, just as a brief explanation. Yeah, of the late, of the late Victorian period, it's him, it's Roberts, uh, Lord Roberts, and then perhaps a little later on, Kitchener. But, you know, I, I'd, I'd put Kitchener behind me. Wolseley and Roberts personally, but there you go. Um, and so he really, Wolseley sort of becomes, uh, well, he was called, wasn't he? Um, our army's only general or this nation's only general or something like that, uh, which is a bit unfair on Roberts, but Roberts was out in India doing his thing. Um, and so basically whenever there's a campaign or there's a likelihood of war, Wolseley's the man who's being earmarked, take it. And Wolseley builds up around him this group of young, to a large extent, quite intellectual officers. Um, and they sort of become his private general staff. Um, one important thing to remember is at this period in time, there is no general staff of the British Army. There's a staff college and it's training staff officers, but there's no general staff for them to naturally go into. And we don't get a general staff until the early days of the 20th century. Um, it's one of the things that comes out of the, the aftermath of the uh, uh, South African War. It's this need for a general staff. And even then it's not done particularly well. It takes, it takes quite a while to actually get it up and running properly. Um, and actually there's an important thing. I mean, you know, we talk about Brackenbury as a writer and you said, how influential is he? Well, I don't know about how influential, but some of the things he's campaigning for are quite uh, extraordinary. Um, in the 1860s, late 1860s, he's campaigning for a general staff and the creation of a chief of staff. You know, as I say, 40, almost 50 years before it actually becomes a reality. There's other things in his writing, which is quite, um, 
quite, uh, you know, extraordinary. I mean, he's talking about uh, greater training and organization for reserves, volunteers, militia, again, in the 1860s. And, and he's really, he's envisaging the territorial army, which again, doesn't come until the early 20th century. Um, and there's, there's an, Im an important thing, which again, you know, you need to understand the significance of this. This is the late 1860s. You have a young man on our, writing on army reform here who is suggesting the creation of an imperial army. And this is a true imperial army. And he even, and forgive me, I'll use the language of, of, of the time. He even envisages a day where, as he puts it, Hindus and Muslimen, the so Hindus and Muslims, uh, will be commanding British soldiers. He's really seeing- Oh wow, very ahead army. of his time. Yeah. Very I mean, progressive. We're not just talking about bringing Australian and New Zealand and Canadian units into the British Army and making it an imperial army. No, we're talking about everyone, all races and creeds of the empire coming together. I mean, he's not saying it's going to happen right there and then, but he's saying this is where we have to move to. Um, and again, 100 years before his time, you know, probably to be quite, quite honest. Um, yeah. You know, it, it is quite uh, extraordinary. And so you see this, he, he's a great thinker and he's a great developer of ideas. And, and one of the things I think that's important here is he says it in, he, he knows how to write. And if I say that, I don't just mean he knows how to put the words down on the page. He knows how to get his message across. Because when he presents these arguments, he doesn't just present it as many military writers do in an emotional sense or as in a, you know, the army needs this, we need to do this, the army's being underfunded, blah, 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 whatever. He's not doing it in that way. He's actually saying, well, actually, this is practically useful. This is good from an administrative point of view. This is actually, in the long term, going to save us money. Um, there's an interesting point he makes about um, soldiers' welfare, and particularly the increase of the rate of pension. This is in the 1860s when basically it hasn't been increased since uh, the Peninsular War days. Um, and he's asking for a greater pension. He puts it in emotional terms that, you know, firstly, that people who've served this country, you know, been wounded in action, et cetera, et cetera, need to be treated properly. He then puts it in a practical political argument as well and says, every soldier we send back to their village or their town with a good pension, telling stories about how the army's taking care of them, is a recruiting tool. And in an era when, you know, we've got no conscription, we're trying to uh, raise and maintain an army by voluntary enlistment. That way of using soldiers as a recruiting tool, sending them back with, with good stories saying, yeah, the army looks after me, I've got my pension, um, is a way that, you know, will help potentially aid recruitment. And you see Breckenbury's putting that in the article yeah. to reach the politicians, to say, look, actually, I'm not just saying this in emotional terms that we need to do the right thing by these people. We actually gain by doing this as well. We actually help recruitment, which is a perennial problem. Yeah, still is today. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so Chris, you, you mentioned the Franco-Prussian War, and I mm. think one of the interesting things that jumped out at me when I was looking at Breckenbury, looking at the, the notes that you'd sent initially, 
is that he seems to have won both the Iron Cross and the, not Paul Emery, what's it called again? Légion d'honneur. Légion d'honneur, sorry, yes, Légion d'honneur. Yeah, so what's the story there? How did that happen? Well, he actually sees more of the Franco-Prussian War than I think any uh, British person does. This starts off initially um, as one of his um, term time, uh, in between term uh, lecture tours. And he's basically gone off to, to view the battlefields. Um, whilst he's going there, the Franco Prussian War breaks out. He actually mm, breaks the rules a little bit because he has permission to go out there already existing. And just before he leaves, an order is given that no British officer is to travel to the continent because they don't want any British officers getting involved in the Franco-Prussian War and causing a, a diplomatic incident. And his own brother, uh, again, has, has been refused permission to travel as a, as a war journalist because um, he'd wrote quite a bit for the Times. And so uh, Brackenbury, he's got his permission. He's quite within his rights, but he leaves immediately. Uh, he gives no forwarding address. He just gets out of the country, gets there, and knows that if they try and recall him, it's going to take a long time. And he's got a reasonably strong position because he can say, well, I've got my permission here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I didn't know that, you know, it had been uh, overturned or that this order affected me because I've already got my permission. And so he goes out there. He sees the early stages of the Franco-Prussian War. Um, and then he returns home and he writes a number of, of articles about what he's seen. And some of it in particular touches on uh, the way the wounded are being treated and the, the lack of facilities, because obviously this conflict's gone in a direction that well, I think people did see, but perhaps didn't appreciate. You know, we, we, we've got mass killing. It's total war because we've got modern rifles. We've got modern breech loading um, well, sometimes breech loading, but even muzzle loading rifled artillery. You know, this is this is doing a lot of damage. Um, and Brackenbury had previously written about, he'd been to the Paris exhibition and he'd written about um, ambulances and, and hospital care and, and, and sort of tried to highlight that the British Army had nothing like this and, you know, why haven't we? Um, and so these articles bring him to the attention of a number of people, particularly Lord Wantage, and Lord Wantage, um, who's a former, is actually a friend of, well, colleague, um, former British Army officer who uh, had a very, made a very successful marriage and became an incredibly wealthy man <clears throat> and a politician. The best, best type, type of, of marriage. marriage. <laughs> <laughs> if only I'd been that wise. <laughs> well, there's actually, there's a, there's a saying in the Brackenbury family, um, which exists this day, which one of the current members told me, that the Brackenbury's are as, as rich as their wives' money. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Brackenbury appreciated that. Um, but Wantu actually sets up something called the National Aid Society. This is a, a forerunner in many ways of the British Red Cross. Um, and this is a society that is going to provide services to the sick and wounded of all the combatant powers of the Franco-Prussian War. Um, it's very much a neutral society. They're not trying to favor one side over another. And, and Brackenbury later has to deal with accusations of breaches of neutrality and, and tries to ensure that they are maintaining neutrality. 
Um, and so he's actually asked to go out. He joins the committee of the National Aid Society, and then they ask him to go out there because they want a military man. They want someone who knows a battlefield to go out there and run the National Aid Society at the seat of war. Um, he's ideal as, as well because not only has he been there already, uh, he knows the battlefield. He, he has reasonable skill with languages. Uh, he's got a first-rate logistical mind. And so he goes out there, basically, and he runs the National Aid Society at the seat of war. And they provide you know, the, uh, relief to the suffering on all sides. Um, and they're greatly appreciated by all sides as well. Brackenbury has to fight to maintain his neutrality because at various periods, the Germans say, well, we'd like to take over running your uh, enterprise and the French say the same. And he has to say, no, we have to remain neutral. But actually at one point, they, it goes the other way and the Germans actually say to them, if we give you the supplies, can you get it out to the men? Um, and Brackenbury actually has to say to them, well, yes, but if there's French wounded there as well, we'll give it to the French as well as the German. You have to understand that whatever we're giving out, we're gonna give out to whoever's there, the sick and wounded. And the Germans go along with this, um, quite surprisingly. Uh, so Breckenbury actually does a wonderful job there. And at the end of the, um, the campaign, he's, he's honored with both uh, the Iron Cross by the, by the Germans. There's, there's various, uh, technically I think that's given by the Prussians because we're in this stage when yeah, it's good, good point. Because he gets um, he gets a, a Bavarian honor as well, because obviously they're one of the combatant powers, um, and he gets the French Legion d'Honor. And, and as I say, as far as I'm aware, I have never found another case, or can find any evidence that anyone else received both awards, um, because normally they're diametrically opposed, aren't they? You know, if you're getting yeah. one, you're not getting the other. Um, and actually, that, would, that would lead to some questions when you have your medals out, wouldn't it? That'd be a good conversation the, starter. There's the thing. He, there's actually, I mean, it's a long story and I won't go into it, but he's originally, he, he thinks he's going to miss out on the two awards because the Germans have said, well, we're only going to give it to you if you're actually going to be allowed to wear it. And Queen Victoria had a great dislike of her, her officers wearing foreign medals. And actually, he was refused permission. Um, there's questions in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, there's a whole debate about this thing. Um, and they're given permission to wear it, but not on military uniform. So Breckenbury still wears it, but he doesn't wear it on his, you know, his Royal Artillery uniform. So eventually it's the only gets... smoking jacket of an evening. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, there is actually, there's an interesting picture of him in India, because although he's in, he's in a semi-military position in India, and so he makes it a, a, a case never to wear uniform unless other members of the Viceroy's Council also wear uniform. There's quite a lot of things where he's in his civvies or you know, some sort of formal uniform. And there you actually see he's got his British medals. And then on the other side, he's got the Legion d'Honor and the Iron Cross. And it's a most remarkable picture. Brilliant. Uh, Brilliant. So, yeah. Well, well well, 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 I think let's let's jump on because I'm really keen to talk more about his service alongside Wolseley. We've, we've talked about how he met Wolseley and how he kind of became part of Wolseley's inner circle, this so-called Wolseley ring. Um, the Ashanti War uh, up in what's now Ghana. 
I believe he, he was there. Is that right? And is that, was that his kind of first conflict alongside Sagan at Walsley? It was. As I said, there was this contact at the lecture Breckenbury gave. And then shortly after that, Walsley sends him a, a letter saying, uh, I'm off to Ashantiland. Will you come with me as, your, as my military secretary? Uh, which is somewhat of a shock. Um, I think Breckenbury expected some sort of minor uh, quartermaster role or something like that, where his logistical skills. But Wolseley says, no, I want you as my military secretary. <clears throat> One of the interesting things that Breckenbury does on, as they're, they're sailing out to Ashantiland is he gives a series of lectures about the Ashanti and the Fanti and the, that whole area. Um, which is you know, quite an interesting thing because I don't think that happened before on many campaigns that they spend the journey out there preparing for it. Um, he does a brilliant job as military secretary. He, again, there's this element where Breckenbury wants to prove himself as a soldier. So he does actually take part in one of the attacks as well, um, you know, leading from the front. Uh, and he, you know, he comes out of that with, with great distinction. Um, and it's the start of, of, of making him. I mean, I, I suppose there's, there's one little thing that um, needs to be said here. How important military service in the field was for career advancement. Uh, in the first 17 years of his service, Breckenbridge promoted once from lieutenant to captain. In the next 15 years after his meeting with Wolseley, uh, he goes from captain to lieutenant general. Yeah, that, that's quite a jump. Um, Helps to have, to have friends, friends in high places, right? And yet, I mean, there's an element of that. Wolseley is helping, but there are actually also times when Wolseley isn't helping. Um, Wolseley's actually stopped, stops a couple of his promotions. Um, and it's the active service that's, that's helping as well. You know, whether you like it or not, career advancement, particularly in this era, comes on the battlefield. You know, it, it does. I mean, yes, particularly in an, I mean, we, we've sort of, we're getting rid of the period of um, purchase and Brackenbury's not involved by purchasing of commissions anyway, because he's an artillery officer and they, they didn't have purchase. So you've got seniority and it can take an awful long time in the Royal Artillery to get your next rank if it's just by seniority, because you have to wait for someone to either sell out or die. Um, <clears throat> and actually, you know, good war, um, helps you in both ways. It helps advance your name, but it also helps possibly uh, remove some of the people <laughs> Kill off ahead your of rivals. the list. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. sad, sad but true. true. Just, just, yes, yeah, sad but true. Um, and so, you know, Breckenbury is, is, is advanced because of his connection with Walsley, also his connection with Roberts, his connection with certain notable politicians, um, but also because he, he is seeing active service. So, after Ashantiland, um, he sees service with uh, Wolseley in Natal, where uh, he centers, Wolseley's been sent as um, <clears throat> governor. Natal, so shortly after Natal, it's, it's a bit confusing, but basically Natal becomes part of British possessions in South Africa, having been semi-independent, or well, independent, I suppose. Um, and there's a bit of trouble there. And so they send a military man to sort of run the country and try and bring things under control. Really, there's not a lot going on. Brackenbury seems to spend most of his time running the uh, the paper, the, the Times of Natal. Um, you know, he basically runs the paper for, for, for a year or so and, and engages in a, a, an extramarital affair, which um, 
becomes quite uh, quite notable with one of the um, uh, the Shepstons, which I think you know, well known family of that era in in South Africa. Very much so, yeah. Uh, it's Offie Shepstone's wife. He's uh, he's carrying on with. Um, Wow, and was this common knowledge at the time? Did it have any repercussions for him? Uh, it, it didn't, but uh, uh, Bullsley was certainly fully aware of it. Um, and he, he actually, you know, because if you know anything about the Wolseley correspondence with his wife, she is an incurable gossip. And Garnet <laughs> Wolseley indulges her in this by providing her with all the latest gossip. Brilliant. And so... He's telling her all about Brackenbury. So we actually know a bit of what's going on. Um, and Brackenbury says that, you know, Offie Shepton's wife is, is a most delightful woman, et cetera. You know, sort of says he can, doesn't say I can understand it, but he sort of says he can see the attraction sort of thing without saying that. Uh, and yeah. then he also says a wonderful line about, uh, whilst I can't condone it, having mess, met Mrs. Brackenbury, I can understand it. Which, um, <laughs> you know, not a very oh, nice thing to say, but, uh, his first wife was a, quite a, a difficult woman. Um, the, some of her correspondence with Henry just descends into rants um, yeah. that, that have no bearing on what the letter was about in the first place. <laughs> um, so, you know, and Brackenbury's not, uh, not guilt-free there. I mean, you know, he has been engaging in, in uh, extramarital affairs. The, the Shepston one, and the lady, uh, Edith de Sanchez, who becomes his second wife uh, later on after the death of his first wife. Um, they're the only two I can prove. Uh, there, there's another one I, I highly suspect, um, and it is mentioned in the book, but um, I actually have, it's circumstantial evidence and a bit of gossip going around. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Brackenbury's out there in Natal and because of, this affair, uh, at one point, Wolseley actually decides to move up country pretty quickly because Offie Shepston's a crack shot and he's, he's worried that uh, he's going to come gunning for Brackenbury at some point if he finds out. Um, Brackenbury's not the only one. There's a few of his officers who are in, got, uh, involved in various uh, extramarital affairs. I think it's because there was nothing much else to do in Natal at that time. Uh, so, you know, we get this, this period in Natal, which is... It, it's a bit of nothing, really. Uh, and then we get Cyprus, which is very interesting because Cyprus has just been ceded to Britain by the Ottoman Empire to give them a base in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and Brackenbury actually takes a, an important role in completely reforming the police and the prisons and, and, and the crime, the whole sort of you know, criminal justice system in Cyprus, which greatly shows his, you know, his skills. Then obviously he goes with Wolseley to Zululand in uh, 79, where obviously, as we know, Wolseley arrives after really the wars. Yeah, he's too late to really there. do much, isn't he? Yeah, but Charles uh, was already know, wrapped it up. Yeah, Wolseley gets um, quite defensive about this uh, and famously writes in a letter to a politician when they're talking about the dates for which uh, the cutoff dates for the, uh, the Zulu campaign medal. Uh, and they're doing it to the Battle of Alundi, and mm. and, Brack, uh, and Wolseley says, no, we go to the end of the campaign, he writes this famous statement of, I and I alone brought the Zulu war to a successful conclusion. Um, which <laughs> is an actually, exaggeration. Yes. I think Chelmsford, for all his mistakes, he'd wrapped it up pretty he much by pretty the time. Much. <laughs> pretty much. 
Um, but you know that that's Walsley being Walsley. Yeah, and Brackenbury um, was with him at that point. Then was he, he was with him? Yes. And then again, you know, he stays there. Uh, there's an interesting uh, little campaign in the aftermath of the Zulu, or where there's a, a, a petty chief called uh, Sekahuni. I think that's oh, Sekahuni of the Bapedi tribe. Yes. Yes. In, yeah. Yeah. And Brackenbury basically organizes that campaign. The uh, the entire logistical, the plans, the operation is Brackenbury's. Uh, mm. Walsley gives him great credit for it. Now, from a logistical point of view, it's it's an excellent campaign. The fighting is actually tougher um, than a lot of the contemporary sources would have, you know. Uh, our, our friend, Professor John LeBand, has, has, has done some work on this and actually gone to other sources and shown that actually this is a pretty tough fight. But it's a successful yeah. fight because there's been uh, one British and two Boer attempts. That's right, yeah. That they couldn't failed. beat them, could they? Yeah. No, that have failed because they had this fortress in the mountains um, that they'd withdraw to, and yeah, it just couldn't be couldn't yeah. be taken. Well, th this I think this was, was it Colonel Colonel Rowland who uh, who led the first British expedition. I think I, I don't think know if that's what yes. you've touched on, but yeah. Yes, I believe. Anyway, I, I don't want to be to go off on too much of a tangent, no, but no, it's no, one no. that in, interests that, me. I'm keen to do more on that in the future. Yeah, no, that's an interesting campaign. I, I heard um, John Leban give a, 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 a very excellent talk on that. Uh, he actually came to Leicester. Um, he was, he was, well, he was coming over to the UK and uh, I was putting on a conference in Leicester and I said, would you mind, you know, taking a slight detour from London and, and coming up and, and he did and he spoke and it was, it was an excellent day. Oh, it was a wonderful day. Wow. I, I had him, to have been there. I had him, Professor Stephen Badsey and Professor Ian Beckett all on the same lineup. I mean, it was, it was right. brilliant. I did say at one point, I said, we only need Edward Spears and I've got the, you know, the full house. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're talking about uh, Zululand and the Natal. Yeah, Sekukune and, and they yeah. finally had success in that campaign. And then after that campaign, uh, Breckenbury actually goes off to um, India. He's the uh, private secretary to um, the Viceroy, uh, the Governor General of India, uh, Lord Lytton. So an interesting thing is that when Brackenbury leaves as uh, private secretary, his successor for a very brief period of time is, is Charles Gordon, the famous Gordon of Khartoum. Um, Brackenbury isn't there for very long in India, but he builds up a lifelong friendship with Lord Lytton, um, who's the, the governor general of the viceroy. Uh, and Lytton actually uh, becomes quite a useful sounding board for Brackenbury in future years. There's a lot of correspondence where he writes to Lytton asking his advice and they have a great friendship right up to the time that, that Lytton passes away. Um, after India, uh, there's a very interesting little period where he's military attaché in Paris, um, where he uses some of his Franco-Prussian war contacts in the French army to sort of, you know, a, a do his job. Uh, and then <clears throat> we get a, an interesting little period in Ireland whilst he's on I don't know if you're familiar or, or people listening are familiar with the Phoenix Park murders. Um, oh, it doesn't ring a bell to me. Right. There, there, there were very um, significant point in Anglo-Irish relations. We have a, a period here where we're getting the rise of Fenian terrorist groups in Ireland, fighting for a free Ireland. And it's the start of what becomes known as the Dynamite War 
where basically they're going around Ireland and then later the United Kingdom, blowing things up using dynamite. And there's some fairly notable uh, attacks during this period. One of the big starting points of this is the Phoenix Park murders. And they basically, uh, some Fenian terrorists hacked to death, literally hacked to death. Um, Thomas Henry Burke, who's the senior Irish civil servant. Now, he's the target. He is the main target because he is the, he's an Irishman. He's the senior civil servant. He's seen as a collaborator. He's a legitimate target in the eyes of the Fenians. Unfortunately, walking with him at that moment in time is Lord Frederick Cavendish, um, who's literally that morning arrived in Ireland um, to take on a position in the, in the governor's office in, in Ireland. A viceroy again, they often call it the uh, viceroy of Ireland. And so he's taking on this, this role. He, he sees Burke walking through the park. He decides to walk with him and they're talking and they're attacked and they're both murdered. Had it just been Burke, it would have been significant and there would have been reprisals. The killing of Cavendish takes it to another level. Cavendish is the son of the Earl of Derby, uh, sorry, Earl of Devonshire. Uh, he is the brother of Lord Hartington, who you may be familiar with, a significant um, politician of that time who wields an awful lot of power. Um, and he's one of the, he's already sort of slightly on the outs with the Liberal Party, who were the government at the time. And there's a great fear that this will push him out altogether. And eventually he does leave and become a Conservative, part of the Liberal Unionists that go over. Um, the other connection is that uh, Freddie Cavendish, who's murdered, is Gladstone's, um, oh, and I can't remember exactly, he's, he's some relation in marriage to Gladstone. Um, so there's this, there are political reverberations on his murder that are far beyond anything the Fenians thought was going to happen. Uh, as a consequence, Brackenbury is asked to go out there and to basically take over running the police and the crime. And, and some, some people later call him uh, Ireland's first spymaster general. Um, and he basically is given this job. It's a long story, but basically what happens is we get a situation where Brackenbury is sent out there as a knee-jerk reaction to an emergency. The emergency dies down a bit. There's no further you know, outrages at that point. And the political impetus to do something is lost. So Brackenbury is putting forward all these big proposals about, right, if you want me to destroy the Fenians, their organisations, I can do it. This is how we do it. This is what it's going to cost. This is what I need to do. I need to start infiltrating these organisations. Start, need to start betraying them. I need to start making them feel unsafe. That you know, every time they meet, there could possibly be someone in there who's going to betray them. I need to start really. You want me to take them apart? I can do it. This is how we do it. By this stage, the government started to lose interest. Doesn't want to do it. Classic politicians. Spend, yeah, isn't going to spend the money. Brackenbury goes back with with other plans, saying, right, well, we can try doing it this way. This is a bit, little bit less expensive. They say no. And he's actually, there's a wonderful letter that from, from Gladstone saying that uh, Brackenbury's exaggerating the seriousness of the situation. Brackenbury gets fed up, and particularly fed up when in uh, 1882, there's the Egyptian campaign 
one of Wolseley's biggest successes. And Brackenbury's not able to go because of this. Uh, he's got to a point that they're not accepting his um, suggestions. He wants to go to Egypt with Wolseley and the rest of the ring. He resigns his position in Ireland. The government goes berserk. Uh, they basically you know, say, right, he's never getting another appointment as long as we're in power. There's, you know, there, are, there are letters that basically say that. Um, he's put on half pay. Uh, the Home Secretary basically says under no condition should he be given any appointment of any significance or importance. Um, he's not allowed to go to Egypt. Uh, and the whole thing's a, you know, a mess. Now, one of the ironies of this is that the dynamite war then does kick up another notch and they start attacking British targets. And shortly after this, we get setting up of the special Irish branch, later just the special branch, which is set up at a cost 10 times what Brackenbury was wanting to set up. Um, and, you know, just takes it to a different level. They didn't act when they could have acted and then later on have to pay a much higher financial price for it. Uh, so, I mean, it sort of vindicates Brackenbury a bit, but by this stage, Brackenbury has failed to <clears throat> have any interest in Ireland for quite some time. I mean, eventually he does get back to appointment in 1883, April. Uh, he's appointed to command the artillery in Gibraltar, which I think he's allowed to do because they think it's a bit of a backwater. He actually thoroughly enjoys it. Um, it it's, it's a really uh, something that he, he really enjoys doing, but he also knows it, it's a stepping stone and he's trying to campaign for other appointments. Well, in 1884, he gets appointed to the um, Gordon Relief Expedition. Yeah, so Gordon, who he just he just missed in India then. You said they just missed one another in India, and now, now he's trapped in Khartoum. Yes, and Wolseley's sent out there to try and relieve him. It's a bit of a disappointing campaign in many respects. Um, Walsley, with obviously with memories of his great triumph in, in the Red River expedition, decides to try and send everything down the Nile. <clears throat> it makes sense to an extent, because obviously we haven't got the big railways here. I mean, that was what Kitchener did to, 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 to reconquest of the, the Sudan, was he built the railway. He extended the railway to give them that extra advantage. So they start trying to sail everything down the Nile. It's a laborious process. It's very difficult. Um, Brackenbury's part of the, uh, the river column that is doing this and is, 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 you know, is moving down there. He's the second in command to General Earl. So he's second in command and chief of staff, which is, is an ideal appointment for, for Brackenbury. Um, <clears throat> they then decide because there's a need to get there quicker, they send the desert column off across, try to go across the desert to reach there whilst the river column tries to go to carry on down the river and it's it, it sort of you know, snaking round, going to the river, whereas the desert column tries to go in a straight line. Desert column um, meets a lot of resistance. River column doesn't meet a huge amount, but it's just so slow. Um, then at Kerbican, uh, which is quite a successful little battle, which Brackenbury plays an important part on, although General Earl deserves a lot of credit for that. But General Earl is killed just after it, sort of as they're mopping up the operation. Um, and Brackenbury assumes command of the river column. Now we get this interesting bit where he does continue the, um, the movement uh, down the river, but uh, 
sometimes I think there are, have been some historians who rather confuse what Brackenbury's doing with what Wilson's doing. And as we know, Wilson is the man who's often blamed for being too late because he arrives there you know, just after Gordon's been killed. Well, and Wilson, Wilson was commanding the, the desert column. <clears throat> uh, right? uh, yes, yes, he, well, yeah. He was, but then he did end up actually coming down on a steamer, I think, in the end, didn't he? Um, <clears throat> but yes, he, he did. The, the desert column does devolve upon him. Um, Fascinating <clears throat> campaign, campaign, which I, I hope to do more on in the future, definitely. Yeah, and Brackenbury gets blamed, but um, and Brackenbury, there is actually some people who say that Brackenbury took the controversial decision uh, to withdraw. Well, I can tell you for a fact it was an order from Wolseley because I've seen the order and it exists in the National Archives if anyone wants to go and fish it out. Um, Brackenbury is ordered to withdraw. Part of the reason for that is that Buller, who <clears throat> eventually ends up commanding the Desert Column, has got that far and realises, my column's in a bit of a state. What's the point of going forward? Khartoum's already in the hands of uh, the Mahdiist forces. Gordon's dead. You know, what am I going to do? And he decides to withdraw to regroup. Well, at that point, Brackenbury's got no choice anyway, even if it wasn't a direct order. Once Buller decides to withdraw, Brackenbury's in no state to, to, to advance and try and take Khartoum. But again, that's not really what the orders were. The orders were to relieve General Gordon. Well, General Gordon's dead. And just to, to note that, you know, General Gordon is dead before uh, Brackenbury ends up taking uh, command of the column. Uh, you know, so... To, to blame him in any way or form for, for Gordon's death is a, is a bit ridiculous. But the campaign well, just, 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 just going to interrupt a second there. I'm going to take us on a small tangent for a second related to current affairs. As we record this, it's Friday the 12th of May. Hopefully I'll put the audio version out uh, fairly soon. But there's a lot of fighting going in, in Khartoum at the minute between uh, rival forces, the army and the militia known as the RSF. And the reason I'm talking about that, and maybe we'll know soon, is there's talk that the Sudanese military have been bombing the presidential palace to, to kick out the RSF troops. And the fear is maybe the famous staircase might have been flattened where Gordon was killed. So let's keep our fingers crossed that's not the case. But I've heard... I've heard uh, from people inside Khartoum that they suspect that great historical um, spot, which is inside the modern presidential palace or next to it in the same compound, may have been destroyed. Perhaps by the time this goes to air, we'll know for sure. But that will be very, very sad. Because you, you tried to get in to see it at one point, didn't you, during one of your... I did, yes. I don't know if listeners are aware, but uh, I, I sometimes have worked in Sudan and I managed to get access to the presidential palace and I asked if I could go and see the staircase. And I was very politely fobbed off with, a, oh, it's being used for something else today, but, you know, we'll organise a tour for you at another point. And obviously that hasn't happened yet. So whether I'll ever get a chance to see it now, who knows? But, it, you know, I was hoping to do a video there, but maybe in the future. Yeah, I mean... The Sudan campaign for Breckenbury is an important event because after this, he uh, achieves general rank. He becomes a major general. Um, and he's on to a, now, a, a new level of importance. And there's, there's three key appointments that follow this. Uh, head of the intelligence branch, um, military member of the Council of the Viceroy of India, which might not sound like much, but it's actually an incredibly important position. 
and then Director General of the Ordnance during the South African War. And so this is what now Brackenbury's reached a point where he's really able to show his skill, um, to show his talents. He's got big departments to try and reorganize. And, and he becomes something of a, I suppose, a troubleshooter. You know, he's sent into departments that are failing, that are in great difficulty to completely rejuvenate them and uh, bring them around. And does he do a good job? I mean, you touched on it right at the beginning of our chat. So before we kind of wrap up, his, his later years there doing this troubleshooting, is the feeling that, yeah, he was, you know, he was a bit of a stud. He really got things done. Oh, yeah. Um, particularly in the intelligence branch. I mean, the intelligence branch has actually had a lot of success and has grown, but it's, it's, it's fallen away in its prestige. It's not been taken seriously. A lot of the officers are elsewhere doing other jobs. And this was the problem. Um, one of the things that Brackenbury changed immediately, a lot of the uh, officers on the, in the intelligence branch were attached officers. So they had to perform other duties as well. Um, and of course, because they were regimental officers, still formally on the strength of the regiment, if the regiment got posted somewhere, they were gone. And suddenly there was a, a, a gaping hole Brackenbury reduces the number of attached officers to the department. He also completely rejuvenates it. And, and the intelligence branch of this period is, is a magnificent thing. Uh, anyone wants to know any more about it, and there are some excellent books on it, Thomas G. Ferguson's British Military Intelligence, but also, um, oh, will it, Under Every Leaf by William Beaver. Under Every Leaf, William Beaver, okay. That is a, a magnificent book on the, the history of the intelligence branch um, and basically shows how it was rejuvenated under Brackenbury. Um, and, uh, you know, we're looking at a period here where it goes from being a backwater to almost being a general staff in all but name. So the military intelligence branch, sorry, sorry to cut you off, Chris, just because just I'm not sure. The military intelligence branch at the time would that be like the modern day intelligence core, like sort of analysis of like, you know, the enemy and all of that? Or was it more like the modern MI6? Like, where did it sit? What, what was its role? It's a bit of everything, actually. It's a bit of everything. I mean, we're not talking necessarily about field intelligence. So that's separate. We're not talking about officers, intelligence officers who accompany uh, expeditions, military expeditions. We're talking about... Uh, War Office Intelligence. So there's a bit of what would become MI6. There's a bit of uh, a more so your intelligence core as it is today, or um, you know, military defense intelligence. Um, it's very interesting because, as I say, it, it's a department that's virtually ceased to exist. Brackenbury quickly turns it into a very dynamic department that's greatly appreciated by politicians. So we're looking at a case whereby he's given, such is the quality of the intelligence he's producing and the importance of it and the significance and, and how well it's appreciated. He's given permission to uh, circumvent normal war office procedure. So rather than sending everything through Commander-in-Chief and Secretary of State for War, if he's asked to, he can send it directly to a cabinet minister. So if the foreign secretary wants wants to know everything we know about Abyssinia. I don't know. So just, just as, a, as an example, um, Brackenbury could send the reports straight to there. And they built up this magnificent 
War Office Library, Intelligence Library. And Brackenbury had a very simple way of uh, operating intelligence. And he basically uh, called it constantly sucking in information. So constantly be bringing in information. And then the clever part was to collate it, to put it into reports, into files. And they had this magnificent library, um, which was the envy of the world, actually, at one point. The Germans, you know, this great German intelligence staff that we hear so much about. They think the War Office intelligence is magnificent. They are absolutely amazed that here is a department that is half the size and half the budget. Well, no, not even that. Quarter the size, quarter the budget of what they've got. And they're producing this excellent intelligence. Um, Grierson, uh, James Grierson, maybe a name you're familiar with, uh, plays an important part in the build-up to the First World War. And he's actually the first commander of the Second Corps of the BEF in 1914, but dies before the war actually really gets going. Uh, Grierson is an intelligence officer at this point and is producing some magnificent material on Russia. <clears throat> he's got such close relations with Germany uh, and with the Germans that um, the Germans are actually seeing some of his intelligence reports before the British do. And there's this way of, of working together. Um, and they're doing it you know, officially. Because at this point, we're talking about the 1880s, 1890s, Germany's still our friend because we have a mutual potential enemy, Russia. You know, something's never changed. Um, and so we, we're sharing a lot of intelligence, working together. And there's reports, there's, there's, there's letters, there's correspondence you'll see from the German military who are saying, this stuff is magnificent. This is better than anything we've got. And he builds up this great department. And a lot of it, we talk intelligence and people think spying. There's an element of that, but it's actually very small. A lot of it is information that's in the public domain. So journal articles, um, foreign newspaper cuttings, uh, things like that. Also trade reports, you know, su such and such a company has sold this to the German army or to, to the French army, da, da, da. which on its own is fairly insignificant, but you put it all together and you get some very accurate reports. Yeah, yes, there's the military attache reports as well, but again, they're less significant than the stuff that's coming just from the public domain. And, there, and every now and again, Brackenbury does send in a spy um, in inverted commas. And, and basically he sets up a procedure for doing this, which is whereby officers on leave will travel to an area and just take little notes as they're going there. And one of the famous ones is Baden Powell, uh, who does a lot of interesting um, spy work. Uh, and one of the, the notable things is where he goes to um, French North Africa and takes, uh, draws a, a picture uh, of, of various coastal scenes, etc. And in, in an intricate, um, sort of system of dots and dashes, he uh, estimates the caliber of guns uh, and how many of them are, where they're positioned. Uh, and it's just, a, if you just look at it, it's an ordinary watercolor, but there's something hidden inside it. Um, and, you know, they bring this back in the reports there. Um, so people like Baden-Powell um, that, that, that do these little bits of spying, but that's actually a, a small part of it, really. Uh, the, the significant 
stuff is bringing in the intelligence like that. And just to go forward, I mean, we're going into South Africa. And as I say, in the South African war, Brackenbury um, is one of the few men who comes out of the war with a lot of credit to his name. And there are two elements that he deserves credit for that are due to his time in the intelligence branch. One is the report that the intelligence department uh, produces on the Boer states, which I don't know if you know this. And if you read more modern histories of the South African war, you'll see that actually British military intelligence was spot on. It was just ignored. Um, by this time, uh, General Sir Charles Adar is running the department, who'd been Brattenbury's deputy when he'd been head of the department. And they produce a report on the Boer states, which is almost exact down to the, to the smallest detail. So much so that when the Boers capture this, they actually reprint it for their own use. <laughs> um, you know, so it, is this really significant? Now the problem with the intelligence was and why sometimes you see, particularly in older histories, there's a failure of intelligence. It's not really a failure of intelligence, it's a failure to listen to the intelligence. Uh, reports were sent to Wolseley, didn't get any further. And when the cabinet did become aware of it, it largely ignored the reports as well. Um, so it's not a failure of intelligence in that sense, it's a failure to listen to the intelligence. The other big thing Brackenbury does is the mobilization scheme. Um, whilst he's head of the intelligence department, he puts together these excellent mobilization schemes, uh, which are just fantastic, uh, brilliantly detailed. This is the mobilization scheme that works superbly during the South African War. You know, the, the mobilization of troops and getting them out to South Africa. The war office is expecting a disaster and it brings on extra staff to deal with the problems. There's no problems, it runs so smoothly. And these uh, mobilization schemes are actually the basis for what was used during the First World War as well. So Brackenbury gets a lot of credit for, for, for things he did in the past as well. Um, in South Africa itself, the South African War, his work as Director General of the Ordnance is just magnificent. Um, he, you see Brackenbury at his best here. He's using um, his skill, his knowledge, but he's also bending the rules wherever he can. And Landstand's allowing him to bend the rules. Um, technically, just as a quick example, technically as Director General of the Ordnance, before he buys anything or before he orders anything or construction or anything, he's supposed to send all the um, papers in to the financial secretary of the war office for approval. <clears throat> he basically says, look, we've got a war going on here. I can't be doing this all the time. And Lansdowne manages to give him permission from the cabinet that anything urgent, he can uh, just do off his own bat and then send in the paperwork later. Well, Brackenbury take, bends this a little bit and decides that anything connected with the war whatsoever is classed as urgent. And so basically it's just commissioning stuff off his own bat and sending it out there to meet the emergencies of the time. And without him, the army would have run out of ammunition. Um, he manages to borrow stuff from all over the empire. Uh, there's a huge shortage of, of such, such stuff like Bordite, for example. So at one point he has to send out a, a, a load of artillery shells just filled with gunpowder because there's no cordite. The, 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 and this is where he manages to get around some of the, uh, the war office uh, way of doing things. For example, there's only 
they only use three companies for the supply of cordite. There's 20 in the country that can produce it, but they only use these three. And Brackenbury says, well, why on earth are we doing that? If we've got 20 companies that can produce it, we've got a huge demand for it. Let's go to them. And eventually they do. And, and there's all sorts of things like this with, with ammunition as well. Um, you probably know there's a famous story about Sir George White when he's commander in uh, South Africa at the start of the Boer War. He sends in a demand for to the war office for four million rounds of ammunition. Well, he gets a message back saying, uh, I think there's an error in your message here. You surely don't mean four million rounds. Well, yes, he did. And, and things like that demand was the monthly supply, I think they were looking for, uh, at the height of it, they were looking for 3.5 million rounds a month for South Africa during the war. Well, British, in, uh, British industry can only produce 1.5 million rounds. So there's a, there's a major shortfall there. And Brackenbury basically gets the ordnance factories uh, working on this full time. And between them, they just about cover it. But the ordnance factories, and here, you know, just needs to be explained. Brackenbury makes a condition of taking on the job that the ordnance factories are under his control, as director general of the ordnance. It's a darn good job he did that. He wouldn't have known that the war was coming. Well, perhaps he would have suspected, but he wouldn't have known the demands of it. Having the ordnance factories there allow him to meet these demands for ammunition. He would just would not have been able to do it without the ordnance factories. And the problem is the War Office has this belief in the power of British industry. And they've allowed the uh, ordnance factories and the, the government's own manufacturing side to come into disrepair, basically because there's a belief that whatever we need in an emergency, British industry will supply. Well, the South African War blows that theory out of the water because British industry is just not able to keep up. And in absolute fairness to them, we're talking about commercial concerns. Um, there's there's a, a, an area where uh, the um, there's a firm, Kinex, who are producing ammunition, and they've got an order for the American army. They consider that more important than suddenly having to produce ammunition for the British army. You know, we've got this order, we've got to fulfil it, and we've got to meet it. Perfectly understandable because they're a commercial concern. They've been paid for this. You know, they can't suddenly say, oh, sorry, we can't do that anymore. We've got to do this. I mean, unless it, you know, First World War, obviously it becomes different. It's a national emergency, et cetera, et cetera. But unless you declare the South African War a national emergency and start saying to firms, the government needs to say to firms, you've got to forget foreign orders. We need to concentrate on the British. Commercial concerns are always going to be the heart of a commercial company. And this yeah. is where you needed the ordnance factories. And it was so vital that Brackenbury had been able to get them working and get them doing the job properly. And this is why someone like you know, the future King Edward says he pulled the army out of the hole. Because if he hadn't done things like this, uh, South Africa war would have been very, very different. They would have run out of ammunition, most certainly. Yeah. Well, was this, was this Brackenbury's last job in the army or did he have something else after that? It was. Um, <clears throat> Brackenbury had often been uh, suffered from ill health, mainly because he worked himself to exhaustion. As you can imagine, with the demands of the South African War upon his department, because we're not just talking about ammunition, we're not just talking about ordnance, we're talking about clothing, we're talking about wagons, 
We're talking about uh, animals, you know, horses, mules, etc. Um, we're talking about the supply of horseshoes. We're talking about the supply of wagons, wagon wheels, everything. You know, he's, he's he's supplying virtually the entire army. So it's a huge demand placed upon him and the department. Well, war ends in 1902. There's then this period of great reorganization. I mean, actually, in 1901, I believe it's 1901, there's a period where Brackenbury says, I've got to take a, a fortnight's holiday because if not, I'm going to collapse. And so he's given a fortnight's leave and then comes back and, and carries on um, with the war. And we see the situation by 1902. He stays on for another two years to help the reorganisation. He gives evidence to various commissions and committees. Um, it's annoying in many respects to Brackenbury, I think, because we now have a period where they're talking actively about a general staff. They're talking about all these developments and all the reforms that he's longed for for years. And there's the political will for it because the South African war's given us a hell of a shock. Um, but he's in no position really to, to do much more than advise. Um, had he been in better health, had he been a bit a little younger, he'd have been the ideal first chief of the general staff. Um, he, he was the, the absolute first choice for it. Um, in 1890, when the Hartington Commission uh, recommends it, everyone knows Breckenbury's going to get the job. If the Hartington Commission in 1890 had said, we need a general staff, Breckenbury would have been the man. Um, everyone yeah. knows. And so we have this disappointment in Breckenbury that by 1904, he's, he's dying. He is literally dying. Um, if he hadn't have retired then, he would have been gone within months. As it was, he lived for another 10 years, but for most of that, he was in, well, not most of it, for a lot of it, he was in Hill health. We know from his nephew, uh, various letters in 1910, 1911, um, he's often too ill to, to see guests, to see visitors, um, although he lives on until 1914. He actually retires with his, uh, with his second wife, who's, who's considerably younger than him, but um, it's a real love match this time. I mean, he married his first wife for money, to be quite frank and, uh, you know, and crude. Uh, and she was eight years older than him. Um, there was no great love there. When he marries his second wife, Edith de Sanchez, um, there's, a real, there's a real connection there. And they go off to the south of France and they live there in, in, in retirement. Um, and he dies in, in 1914, shortly before uh, the outbreak of the First World War. And um, so, so Chris, I, I think I think that is a fascinating life story. This man has. He's done so much, as you say. He's been pretty much everywhere during that late Victorian era. Would Would you say, from your research, then, is it fair to call him probably the most, or one of the most influential and important generals of the Victorian era? Behind the scenes, yes, yes, he really is. Um, but he's been completely forgotten. Uh, part of the reason for that is, well, it's twofold. I mean, he had no children. And normally it's the children who carry on the legacy. Um, oftentimes it would be ne nephews, maybe. Well, his nephews were actually busy carrying, trying to carry on the legacy of, of his brother, Charles Booth Breckenbury. Um, so yeah, no one, he's, he's forgotten quite quickly. 
really. Although there are some interesting, um, I think I sent you the quotes from 1917 from the Earl of Derby. Uh, the Earl of Derby gives a, a most remarkable speech in, in, the, in the House of Lords where he calls him one of the, uh, the finest officers ever to wear uh, the king's uniform, um, which is quite, uh, quite a state of a compliment. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Um, uh, I think he said, calls him, uh, I have always looked upon as one of the most brilliant officers that have ever been in his majesty's army. Uh, the noble Marquis will know him well, I refer to Sir Henry Brackenbury. Uh, that's in, 19, uh, in 1916. Uh, and then we get this magnificent story he tells in uh, a little bit later on, where um, it's just before Brackenbury leaves the, the army and uh, the Earl of Derby is, I think, financial secretary at the war office or undersecretary, it's, it's some some political role in the war office. And Brackenbury comes to him um, about uh, airships. And they were trying trials with airships in an older shot at the time, uh, dirigible balloons, if you want to be uh, entirely accurate, but airships is, is, is what people will know them as. And if anyone knows in the early um, uh, war games, um, exercises uh, of, before the uh, before the First World War, airships are used quite a lot, mainly for reconnaissance. But Breckenbury's looking at them in a completely different way. Um, and the Earl of Derby had taken the line of opposing them as an unnecessary expense. Well, Breckenbury came to him, and, and I'll, I'll quote you the words. He said, I wish you would help me to get this through, i.e. these more balloons and, and, and airships. Uh, I shall not live to see it, you may but I believe that England is more in danger from the air than she has ever been since the Spanish Armada. Now, if you think about that, this is, this is in 1903, this conversation is taking place. Ahead of his time. Uh, again, even at the very end, you know, just before he leaves office, he's still thinking ahead and he's still ahead of his time. All right, he's seeing the threat from uh, airships um, which would come to light in, in you know, uh, in the First World War with the Zeppelin raids, which did you know, more da that that gets forgotten to a large extent. The damage the Zeppelins did gets forgotten because then we get the Blitz of of the Second World War. But if you think of what Breckenbury's saying in 1903, you know, we're, we're England's in more danger from the air than she's ever been. Uh, he's seeing the future. How you know, it, it's a fitting epitaph to the man that this was said by the by the Earl of Derby in the House of Yours, House of Lords, a few years after Brackenbury's death. That you know, mm -hmm. he's looking ahead even at the very end. I think I think Chris, I think that is a wonderful place to wrap it up because I think that's a great way to finish. So you've written a book about about the man. If people want to get hold of that book or want to get in touch with you to find out more, what what should they do? Well. The easiest way, I mean, is to go to um, hallion.co.uk. Um, they're the, uh, the publishers of the book. Um, you'll find it there. Please go there, not to, to any other um, <laughs> notable site. Nothing named after, after a river. Yes. For buying. Um, so if you go to just www.hallion.co.uk, you'll, you'll find it there. Um, 
I think nowadays you'll find that they're selling the paperback. There was a hardback, but I, I believe that sold out a few years ago now. For those who are listening, Chris, what's the name of the book for someone who's just listening and can't see it? It's The Thinking Man's Soldier, The Life and Career of General Sir Henry Breckenbury, 1837 to 1914, by me, Dr. Christopher Bryce, and it was published by Hellion. So if this talk has sparked your interest, guys, then please consider buying Chris's excellent and incredibly well-researched book. I'll be back with another episode at the end of the month where I'll be continuing my season on the Indian Mutiny of 1857. This time we're travelling to Delhi and hearing all about the oldest ever recipient of the Victoria Cross and how he won his award. It's an amazing story and one I'm sure you won't want to miss. Alright guys, take care.